Are you looking for your next wine challenge? Do you want to taste more than 300 wines in 4 days? How about joining a community of passionate, qualified Italian wine specialists and gaining one of the most coveted qualifications in the wine world? Apply now to the Vinitaly International Academy and you'll have all this at your fingertips. Pedro Ballesteros, Master of Wine, says VIA is the only Italian wine program that delivers high-quality training and serious exams. More details on our website www.vinitalinternational.com Italian Wine Podcast Cin Cin with Italian Wine People Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Walden. My guest today is Simon Wolf. Simon, where are you at the moment? I'm in Amsterdam, Monty, where I live. How did you end up in Amsterdam? So I ended up in Amsterdam actually uh, for nothing to do with wine. Basically, uh, about six years ago, I, my main career was in IT at the time, and wine was very much a part-time pursuit. And I actually moved to Amsterdam to follow a, an IT job. Um, it was kind of chance, really, both my girlfriend and I had the opportunity to to move countries and we thought this could be fun to try living somewhere else amsterdam seems kind of nice let's give it a try and you're still there after how many years we're still here after six years so yeah and so how did you obviously you had a sort of previous career I and mean, is your it career ongoing still or are you 100 percent wine now or do the or do the do the two coincide i'm pretty much 100 percent wine i mean once in a while I do a, a, maybe a little bit of consultancy or support uh, for IT clients that I've had for donkey's years. But yeah, wine is pretty much 100% these days, especially after the the, the book that I published um, a year or two ago, because that's, uh, that's kept me quite busy. And what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Amber Revolution. So that, you know, you're obviously a natural wine fan. How did you... Um... How did you decide to follow that sort of tre- not trend, if you like, but that sort of uh, style of winemaking? Was it just you had a glass of wine and you loved it, or s- what was the reason? Yeah, it was kind of chance and kind of not. I mean, I've I've always had a a very strong belief that the the only sensible way to farm is is to farm organically or even biodynamically. So that's that's always been a strong thread in my life. It's something that my parents instilled into me actually because we we grew up on a a kind of small self-sufficiency kind of farm so when I first started getting really into wine and writing about it I was always more interested in people who were on that side of the of the fence so to speak and so of course if you if you're mixing with a lot of uh, winemakers who are working with organic viticulture then at some point you're going to come across natural wine and I did round about 2011 I guess and I was I was stunned actually I was stunned by um, how vivid some of these wines can be so my initial experiences were very positive indeed Uh, and then I realized that this is this is actually a highly controversial area of winemaking and so I, I think I also realized maybe slightly naughtily but it's actually rather fun to write about because people argue about it all the time. So, I mean, for you, it, it's more than just a talking point for you, though, isn't it? I mean, you obviously got a, 
um, a love of uh, of these particular wines. I mean, when you say they're challenging, what do you mean by that? Um, well, what I, what I think the word I used was controversial because I, I, I realised that people have a hard time agreeing on when a, when a natural wine is good wine or, what, or when it might have something that some people would term a fault. So I think that's the interesting thing. There's been this kind of search for perfection maybe in the 20th century where everybody thought that uh, the right way to make wine was to use as much technology as possible and paper over the cracks and of course natural wine the the natural wine philosophy is saying the exact opposite it's almost celebrating the idea that that wine is often not something perfect it often has quirks and idiosyncrasies uh, and I think that's part of what makes it beautiful, really. I mean, but you're not like, um, you know, obviously you know that I'm sort of into biodynamics, but I don't consider myself as a fundamentalist. Um, do you consider yourself as a fundamentalist or, or just someone who's very sensible and mindful of what he's consuming? Um, and um, what's, your, what's your tolerance for sort of really funky, really natural wines that some people would say are just so, so faulty they're almost standardized yeah my tolerance is limited I'm, I'm definitely not a fundamentalist I think the the point that I'm coming from in this is is really it's I'm coming from a very selfish point of what I personally like to drink and I think more and more as time goes on I just I don't find wines that have been made in a heavily interventionist way very enjoyable or or interesting. I don't find them enjoyable to drink and often I can't find very much to write about them either. So that tends to be what draws me to people who are working at the at the limits of minimal intervention. That said, um it is very frustrating um when you hear people celebrating wine that is just faulty and nothing else. And I I have limited tolerance for wine where something's clearly gone wrong yet people are still happy to say oh this is wonderful it's it's so um you know expressive of the terroir when it when it clearly isn't um, but i think we're we're maybe still in an early phase here there's still you know there are still a lot of people who are excited that there's a different niche in wine that there's something that's maybe a bit more dynamic and fun and it'll take time to shake that down and, and maybe sort of throw off the emperor's new clothes in the the places where they do appear. I mean, my argument, I I don't know if you'd agree with this, is is, um, take your point about the sort of quotes, the modern industrial wines that we were drinking maybe 15 years ago, because they did, a lot of them just taste the same. And um, I always have to choose my words carefully, but in a, a, for example, a natural wine fair, if you have four wines that come from different countries and they all have the same predominant fault, for me, that also is a is a sort of um, standardisation by the back door. Um, and um, it's quite interesting to hear you. I think you're on the same page, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's always, there are always wines, even in even in the natural wine niche, where you can see that actually the decisions that the winemaker has made have had a greater impact on the on the style of the wine than, than anything else. Um, but that's something I, I accept. I mean, I, I do attach an enormous amount to the, the drinkability of a wine and I think that for me is the that's the final arbiter in a lot of cases so terroir is a is a wonderful concept I, I think as a word it's hideously overused 
Um, also, I think a lot of the time when my winemakers try to take themselves out of the equation and say, oh, my wine is just about the, the place, I think that's actually bullshit. It's almost impossible not to have something of yourself in a wine. You know, there are, there are so many decisions that, that get made, even if it's things like harvest date or, you know, whether to ferment in a, a cement vat or a, a stainless steel tank. So ultimately for me, it's have you, have you produced a wine which is, which is balanced and that I can drink that's refreshing, maybe it's elegant, maybe it's fun, maybe it is, is a bit funky, but if it's funky within parameters that are delicious, then that's also fine. Yeah, it's nice to hear you um, talk about the consumption. That um, I don't know if, if you agree with this. For me, wine is food. It's a food is just as an apple or an orange is. And uh, I'm trying to be careful about what I drink. And you come across as somebody. I mean, you look very fit, um, by the way. I don't know if you sort of go running and things like that. But you're clearly someone that does look after his body so much. So I was reading that you um, documented for a month everything that you drank is that true that's correct and I, I did that I did that during January actually because I was getting so hacked off by the the sort of dry January uh posturing um, <laughs> so dry January I, is basically when people, really, people don't drink any alcohol right they have a month of no alcohol they do and of course what yeah what happens is you you see a lot of people kind of being very proud that they're doing this or being very sanctimonious about it and and I actually think it's quite unhelpful and I I would agree with the point of view that many many people have put forward that I think if a lot of people kid themselves if they take a month off in January then it doesn't matter what they do for the rest of the year and there are there are probably even people out there who are who are really drinking way too much but they they use this dry January as a as a device to say look at me I'm fine I'm I'm uh, you know, I'm I'm in a good place, and I I don't I don't think it's helpful. And I think, in general, the the discussion around whether you know whether alcohol is dangerous or you know how much drinking is too much, is a very is a very poisoned one. Unfortunately, we have a we have a very powerful anti-alcohol lobby these days, and increasingly powerful. Actually, and you can see that in you know government recommendations and legislation even. So this this exercise was really just an attempt to draw attention to you know let's have a let's have a different discussion let's have an honest discussion about how we consume wine or other alcohol and what that might mean. Do you, I mean do you ever worry about your own consumption? I mean not that we're going to talk about this all the time but I mean you know obviously in wine we are you know dinners and lunches and tastings and things like that. I mean apart from that if you just say you're writing a book and you're at home most of the day you know, for a few weeks. Um, do you just drink anything at any time, you know, lunchtime or whatever, or drinking a lot, or do you have days where you don't drink at all? Yeah, I have days when I don't drink. Um, I very rarely drink at lunchtime unless I'm in a, you know, an incredibly beautiful wine region and a winemaker puts a glass of something delicious in front of me. But of course, I'm not going to say no. Um, but yeah, I, I try to be sensible, but of course I, of course I do worry about it um i think i've i've never worried about it from the point of view of worrying that i'm dependent or an alcoholic but the problem is you know i genuinely love wine i'd I'd love i love drinking it i love tasting it so there's always that thought at the back of the mind you know is am i going to get 
is this going to go too far? Am I going to suddenly find that I'm over-consuming? So one of the reasons for my project during January was kind of just as a reality check, really. Let's, let's have a look at this and see, see what it looks like when I document it and also see what other people think. You know, I was curious to see if I'd get horrified reactions of, you know, people sending me private messages saying, Simon, you know, you think you should slow down a bit, old chap. Um, or would the opposite happen and people would say, crikey, that's so, uh, that's so moderate. And actually it was more the latter, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> yeah, you did. If I remember, you had one day when you didn't have any alcohol, if I, and the other, other day you were very honest, it seemed, about documenting. I had a few. I mean, yeah, I think I had six days, six days in January where I didn't drink anything. But I also had some days that were, you know, <laughs> that were quite, how shall we say, sociable. So what, going back to your, your family, the idea that you grew up in a sort of self-sufficient farm, and were your, your parents, were, I guess, were, they were professional farmers? Were they sort of hippies? Because you could, you know, living in Amsterdam, which is a pretty laid-back place, um, is that sort of a theme in your, in your life of sort of live and let live? Mm, yes and no. no actually, the funny thing is, even though my parents came from the time of hippies, they they were absolutely no such thing, really. But they, but they definitely picked up on some trends that were developing during the late sixties, early seventies. And they, they, I think actually, it was more my mum. She, she grew up uh, with this kind of powerful sustainability and self sufficiency drive in her family. And they they farmed actually during the the Second World War. Her her parents were conscientious objectors, and so they chose farming instead of fighting. And my mum always always felt that you know it was instilled in her that um, growing things and doing it in a sustainable way is really the only sensible way you can live. So I think she indoctrinated my father, and and we just grew up with this as a as a sort of powerful life model really so they they weren't professional farmers they they just they they were people i'm sorry my dad's still alive i'm referring to him in the past tense but he is still kicking around um but they're they're people who loved food and drink and loved to have the you know the freshest and highest quality produce they could get their hands on and of course inevitably that draws you towards growing your own things and even producing your own meat or whatever. So what's your relationship with Italy then, given that, um, you know, it is known for its food and a lot of people still do. I'm in Tuscany now and my neighbours on both sides are growing uh, growing food and we have a vegetable garden. Everybody has one around here. Um, is that also a part of your, um, your own um, sort of DNA? I can't say it's part of my DNA, but it's de- I think it's what is true to say is that Italy has probably become my first love when it comes to a, a food nation I think I mean when I was when I was younger I always used to believe that France was the the be all and end it all when it came to food and wine and then I, I I sort of had a bit of a revelation really in the from I guess from about 2010 onwards I started traveling to Italy regularly uh, it was serendipity in many ways and discovered incredible wines um, that fascinated me obviously um, specifically the the macerated wines aka orange wines of Friuli and so on so there were so many reasons to keep coming back to Italy and I think it it really made an impact on me that Italian food is is 
purely about celebrating the, the quality of the ingredients and, and not doing too much to get in the way. And I really love that ethic. So it's really one of your favourite regions then? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the, especially the Collio, really. When I, when I say Friuli, I'm really using that as shorthand for the Collio. And why is that area so special for you? The Collio is special for me because it's, it's, it's really the area where the modern renaissance of orange wines began. And orange, orange wine as a topic is just something that's obsessed me for seven or eight years now and obviously resulted in, in this book, uh, which I wrote. And I also find it called uh, called Amber Revolution. It's a great title. That should be your PR, oh, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's a very, Amber, Revolu- Amber Revolution is um, it's a very, very good title. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but are you in in that book? Are you um, sort of quite, I'm going to uh, blindly loving every single wine that winemaker that you that you met, or are you being sort of um, objective in um, in your judgments and and commentaries? I'm quite objective, but the the thing about Amber Revolution is is it's fundamentally not a guidebook or a textbook. It's actually a story, um, and it's the it's the story of two or three individuals who who really had a fight on their hands to try to convince the world that what they were doing had some relevance and the wines they were producing were actually worth considering as fine wines so it's a you know it's a good old-fashioned story of personal struggle and overcoming uh, a massive face of of um negativity i guess who were the three well i mean uh yoshko yoshko gravner and stanko radikon are two of the the most major characters in my book sorry it's probably slightly more than three and then um i also talk about several of the the key georgian winemakers who really spearheaded the the kind of parallel reinvention of traditional georgian winemaking so we're talking about people like ramas uh, nikoladze or um georgi dakishvili so if you're having a you're at home um and uh, and i turn up and um, you put a bottle of uh, orange wine on the table. What would be a good dish? Um, what would you What would you offer me to eat and say this is a good food and wine match? Well, it, it depends on which orange wine. And actually, you've given me an opportunity to bang an, another drum that I like to bang here because I think orange wine for me is such a broad church. You know, there is as much variety in this style as there is in white wine or red wine. So it's so in a way the question you've just asked me if you ask me if you put a white wine on the table what would the food match be? It's the same question with orange wine. So it depends so much. What I what I would say though is that since most orange wines have this textural element, which maybe isn't such a a big part of white wine, um, in general they're they're incredibly versatile food wines, and then typically I find if I'm if I'm cooking anything that has a, a kind of salty umami element, then I know that I'm going to find an orange wine that's going to pair really well with that. Um, but it could be could be meat, it could be cheese, it it could be spicy Asian cuisine. I've I've had success with almost almost everything really. Have you ever been tempted to make your own wine? Um, yes, kind of, and actually I have done so twice. Uh, so far, just uh, uh, as a collaboration. So I, um, I helped make a, a wine in the Douro Valley. Uh, when is it now? Gosh, it's three and a half years ago. And then I'm also d- 
did a collaboration wine here in the Netherlands, and that was two years ago, although we've actually kind of repeated it every year, although with more limited effort from me. Why the Douro? Um, because I have good friends there, and in, and in particular, there's a, a winemaking family called the Quevedo family, who I know very well, and they basically uh, they invited me to come and make an orange wine. So how could I refuse? And what about... Um Obviously, you write. I mean, do you do you do other things? Do you like host tastings? And uh, how do you earn a living? Um, yeah, it's it, it's the usual mixture. I think. Yeah, I, I host tastings and masterclasses, and uh, obviously speak at conferences or other events where um, people invite me. Uh, so it, it's a combination of that. Um, and uh, yeah, I work as a freelance journalist. Uh, again, focusing on natural wine. So um, that narrows the options a bit but and then uh the the book uh and all the spin-offs from the book have actually become quite a significant chunk of my livelihood as well so the spin-offs like key rings and tablecloths and things like that or spin-offs in terms of um spe- <laughs> this, s- speaking and writing and all that sort of thing and and uh, yeah uh speaking and writing and also i mean the what was quite unexpected uh with this book is that uh this year, by the end of this year, it will be available in no less than five foreign language editions. Amber Revolution, great, yeah. that's really good. And what are the in the foreign languages? Any any weird ones? Or? It's it's. I think they're almost all weird. I mean, the only one that you won't be surprised at is Italy. So it's uh, it'll be published uh, by an Italian publisher in a, a few weeks from now. Um, but it's already come out in a Korean edition and a Taiwan edition in traditional Chinese. And also later this year, it will come out in Japan and in Ukraine. Well, how did that all come about? Did, 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 people, did publishers contact you or did you actively promote this and convince a publisher to do these translations? Or how did that work? No, actually, in all cases, uh, the publishers contacted me. Um, which I, I have to say was, um, it did put a smile on my face because this book was a, a self-published book. It was rejected by every half-decent publisher with a wine list on the planet. Um, so it's ironic in a good way that uh, now publishers are coming to me and, and wanting to publish it in other languages. Yeah, I've, I've done a book um, like you, just nobody wanted to publish it, so I did it myself. And then um, it's funny how um, I think maybe it's almost like they let you test the water. And of course, as soon as it comes out and then somebody knocks on the door, oh, we'd, we'd like to buy that book and publish it, etc., etc., etc. So um, anyway, I think we've, um, have, have we missed anything out? Um, you could ask me what my next book's going to be about, perhaps. All right, go on, let's plug that one, go on. So have you, so, so after the success of um, Amber Revolution, do you have any other books in the pipeline? I do actually. So for the, maybe the last five or six years, I've been visiting Portugal quite regularly and really falling in love with the, the diversity of winemaking and wines and grapes that you can find in that country. I think far more than anyone, than, than almost anyone is ever exposed to. So I have a, a a narrative-based book about Portuguese winemakers, which I'm working on now, which I hope will 
be hitting the shelves. If if not by the end of this year, then very early in 2021. So a narrative, you mean like the, their story in terms of what, not just a boring old book saying, I tasted this wine and it smelt of, ra- smelt of raspberries. You really into the, the personal... Exactly. The personal narratives. And- yeah, I... I Exactly. I think I think um, that that's effectively that's what I tried to do in Amber Revolution as well. Is uh, I talked a lot about it being a book that's uh, a wine book that's more like a novel. So with the idea that you can you can cozy up to it in bed and and read it and enjoy it. And I swear that I won't mention medium plus acidity anywhere. Mm, I think that's a good approach. I mean, it's um it's far far more interesting reading about what people do and their their raison d'etre and rather than just you know we fermented this at 20 degrees c for three days and it smells of raspberries or whatever that's i think that kind of hopefully hopefully that kind of book is is uh, on its way out so um um i just want to say thanks simon for sharing your um love of uh, amber wines and uh, explaining to us about all your uh, various projects you seem to have a very full and varied life so well done you <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'll try to carry on doing I'll that. I'll be your, if these books work, I'll be your PR manager. I'll be the worst PR manager on the planet. But um, you, you won't rumble it initially. <laughs> but after a while, you will. So this guy is completely useless. But to know, well done to you. You've, um, you've carved out a, uh, a niche, uh, and um, a niche within a niche almost. And um, you're making a great success of it. You're a brilliant communicator. Um, and it was great to interview you. And... Uh, I like reading what you write and um, you're a good conversationist as well. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Monty. High praise indeed. All right, mate. I think that's it, yeah? Okay, good. I just want to say thank you to my guest today, Simon Wolf, uh, for talking to the Italian Wine Podcast, explaining uh, his love of amber wines. There we go. Listen to all of our pods on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Himalaya FM and on ItalianWinePodcast.com. Don't forget to send your tweets to at Podcast.